Fred Guttenberg and I are a couple of pissed off dads who lost their beautiful daughters to unspeakable gun violence. What follows is a conversation on how we've dealt with the aftermath, how we've found purpose, and how we learned to live again. Fred, this is a very different episode for me because the shows that I put out there are lighter. They're focused on entertainment, but I thought it was time to profile a a serious subject and with a serious guy. And we are a couple of dads that lost our daughters to high profile acts of gun violence. Yeah. Our lives will never be the same. And as I'm sitting here looking at you on zoom and you're looking at me on zoom, I, I love it the way you've got Jamie in the background, just like I've got Allison. This is our set. They're always with us. They're always there watching over us. They they are always with us. And whenever I need strength or direction or help figuring out what to do next, I always go sit with Jamie at the cemetery. Yeah. And I always ask for some sign, something to help direct me. I always receive it. You know, we both wrote books and one chapter of the book was called Allison Winks or Scooter Winks rather, because that was her nickname, Scooter. And I was astounded by the signs, you know, just little random things that are like, wait a minute, this is not real, but it is real. And they're her reaching out and just giving me a nudge, you know, and, you know, a wink and a nod. And, and those happened all the time. They don't have happened with as much frequency now, but they certainly did early on. I was, you know, I never believed in that stuff before. I believe it now. And I I have to think that you experienced some of the th- same things. I didn't at first. I really didn't. I, I didn't know what to think, actually. The only thing I knew with certainty was that my daughter was no longer with me. I didn't know if there was going to be a way that she was going to connect with me, but but she did find ways to connect with me. Sure. And when it became clear to me that there is no question that she was, and there, is no, there is no doubt in my mind now. And what's so crazy is, you know, it's not like it's happening all the time where it's like, okay, it's just me finding things. Right. It happens like at, at pivotal moments in such distinct, clear ways. No one will convince me there's anything else but Jamie doing it. Yep, that's absolutely right. You know, and for those that say, ah, uh, you know, that's your imagination. No, that's bullshit. It it, it it's real. <laughs> it's it is real, and we're living proof that it is real. And we're not guys yeah. that I think given to hyperbole with, with stuff like that. So, I mean, my epiphany on coming out swinging happened the same that that afternoon that Allison was, was killed. When was that moment for you that you decided to come out swinging? It wasn't that afternoon. Um, I was, my world was spinning. Right. Um, Although the mayor of Parkland saw me that night when they were doing all that reunification stuff with the families. Right. And she said, I was ranting and raving that night. She knew that night. I don't even remember seeing her. It was like, it's all a blur. I will tell you when I know it happened for me, uh, which was the next day. For the first 24 hours, all I could think of is I got to take care of my family. 
I can't believe I got to plan a funeral. Yeah. And that's where my head was. It wasn't, a, it wasn't even about how did the world did this happen? Like I wasn't even thinking about the reality of gun violence. It was, it was more of who I needed to be there for and, and, and the work of planning a funeral until the next day at the Parkland vigil. When I got there, the mayor asked me if I wanted to take her speaking spot. And I've never publicly spoken before. I didn't prepare anything because I, I didn't know I was going to speak. I said, what the hell? Why not? And I went up on the stage and I see thousands of people crying and holding candles. And it was in that moment mm. where it hit me. Gun violence did this. And I started telling everybody about the morning before when I sent my two children to school, a perfectly normal morning. And I talked about what happened that afternoon when I got the call from my son. And it was in, in the telling of the events that, it, that I ended up then saying, this time, gun violence came to the wrong community and the wrong dad. And it, that was my moment. Mm. And I walked into my house after the vigil. My wife was home. She couldn't leave the house with a lot of family and friends here. And I walked in the door. And I don't know if I can curse on this or not, so I'll clean it oh, up. Oh, sure you can. <laughs> and, and, I, and I said to my family, I am going to break that fucking gun lobby and I'm going to break their grip on legislators and legislation. That's what my life is going to be going forward. That was the moment. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I just knew I had to put myself into it. And then about a week later, I got a call from then private citizen Biden who asked me what my plan was. And I said to him, I don't really have a plan yet. I just know I want to break that fucking gun lobby. And he spoke to me about mission and purpose. And I've had a mission and a purpose ever since. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because we had the same experience just four years apart. Yeah. 2015, 2018, three years apart, excuse me. Same experience, same. I'm going to break the fucking gun lobby. I'm. This is the you know the straw that breaks the camel's back. I'm going to be the one that does this. Up until you came along, I was the. I felt like the Lone Ranger. I was kind of the face of gun violence, right? You know, anytime there was a, an event or a mass shooting, I mean, I got calls from CNN while I was traveling. I mean, we were on vacation when the Vegas thing shooting. Ha I mean, it was kind of like okay. It's time to go on TV again. And, and I felt it was like a responsibility to keep the issue on the front burner. But after Parkland, it was you and Jamie's friends taking it on. It was great to have your voice and, and to be an ally. And unfortunately, you know, we while we've made progress, we're still not over the finish line yet. The, the expression, two steps forward, one step back. We've made progress um, on a state, in many states, and on a national level. I mean, yeah. We can't underestimate the importance of the legislation that was just passed of an ATF director of the executive actions. However, at the same time, over the past few years, we've added over 100 million weapons to the streets of America, plus ghost guns. 
just since Jamie was killed. Two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back, wherever you want to look at it, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. And they said uh, early on, you got to remember this is a marathon and not a sprint. I went, screw that. I want this to be a sprint. I want the, I want this to be over. I don't want another dad to go through what I've done. And, you know, sadly, here we are, even though we have made progress. I call you, you're amongst a group of people across this country who I, who I mean this with, with love. I hate that I know you. I love you, but I hate that I know you. And there's lots of people across this country who I feel that way about. We, we, you know, I say this a a lot in, in that I've met wonderful people that I wish I had met under completely different circumstances. Yes. And we're part of the club that nobody wants to join. And before we joined that club, what was your life like before? So most of my adult life was was a a completely normal, boring adult life. Uh, From, you know, sometime in the 90s until 2004, I worked for Johnson & Johnson in sales and management. And then in 2004, I started my own business. I became a Dunkin' Donuts franchisee. Started with two stores and um, uh, ended up with 19 at one point. By in 2015, started selling the business and we were completely exited in 2016. And so the the question then after that was, okay, what next? So my brother, my younger brother, one year younger, ran the triage for the World Trade Center 9-11. Um, uh, yeah. He was a physician and was actually in the World Trade Center when it collapsed. And unfortunately, well, he survived that amazingly. Um, he also, in 2013, got cancer from that exposure. And he got pancreatic cancer, which after surgery, chemo, radiation, he survived and was going into the fourth year of being cancer free, third year, th- almost four years. Um, when in late 16, the cancer came back, um, this time in his lungs, his stomach, his liver, oh, all over. The timing was bizarre because here I am now selling my business at the time when my brother's illness is back. And he was saying he didn't have kids. So I spend most of 17 on an almost weekly basis going back and forth to New York to help him with his medical needs, mm-hmm. um, with his um, financial needs, with his end-of-life needs. I was almost every week until October of 2017 when he passed away. And when he died, I had to spend a, some time in New York after he died just to close out his final affairs. I come back in late October. My wife says to me, you know you're taking the rest of this year off, right? And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you are taking the rest of this year off. She's like, you have not had a day of nothing since before you met me. And you are taking, she wasn't asking me. She was telling me. Right. She's like, you're taking the rest of this year off. So you, what do you do? You listen to your wife. You, and I took the captain speaks. December. <laughs> yeah. But I suspect a lot like you, Andy, I'm not really good at waking up in the morning and saying, okay, what do I do now? Like, yeah. like what's, you know, I'm, I'm not a golfer unlike you. Um, <laughs> and so I was starting to go stir crazy. And in early January of 18, my lifelong best friend, I said to him, I said, I have to find something to do because if I don't, I'm going to go nuts. 
So I started looking into maybe another business. In the prior year, while going back and forth to visit my brother, I got my real estate license, not to sell real estate, but I thought maybe I'd become a business broker and you need a real estate license for that. So I was like trying to figure out what I'm going to do professionally because I needed something to do. And my, I, and I remember saying to my friend Gary, and I, um, and I wrote about this in my book, that I like need a purpose. Yeah. And he's like, I've known you forever. He goes, you'll find it. Don't worry. And a month later, my daughter was shot. Yeah. And un- unfortunately, you found your purpose like I did, your true purpose in a way that you really didn't want to find. No job, no business will ever happen for me again. I, it's my head is, it's like, that's like a lifetime ago. Yeah. Well, and that was the thing. I was a, I was a headhunter before Allison was, was killed. And after that, I couldn't go back to smiling and dialing. I just, I couldn't do it. I had to be an advocate and that was, that's, you know, an activist and a, and an advocate and sure, you know, clearly you've, you've done the same. This is your new job. We have new jobs. This is life. Yeah. Have, Until I decide I'm done and I have to retire, but this is life. So I'm curious, have you, since you've been an advocate and an activist, have you gotten any death threats? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, listen, I get a lot. And, Still. Oh, yeah. And, I, and I'll tell you about one specifically um, in a minute. But, um, you know, most of them. I ignore, um, they come in different ways. Some just via Twitter comments. Right. Some they're, people, they're live, all living live in their grandmother's my, basement. That's exactly right. Some people will take the time to go to my website and send me emails through that. And those I pay more attention to someone who's taking the time to send me an email yeah. and write a whole message to me. And it's also clear that they're monitoring the content of a lot of what I say. I pay more attention to them. Early on in this process, I had some of my friends in law enforcement investigate some of the early ones, and they were all coming from overseas, like in in a factory somewhere. So I ignored a lot until about a year and a half into this when someone started targeting a few of the Parkland families and, and, and very specifically and directly my son via online harassment. And it veered into a threat. And the FBI got involved and they arrested somebody and they prosecuted that person successfully. And that person's sitting in prison right now. And, and it matters because it was actually their first prosecution of online threats um, that they were able to achieve. And, and so it gave them precedent. Precedent. Yeah. yeah. Fast forward to about a year and a half ago. Actually, no, not a year and a half. It was actually like 13 months ago. I started getting bombarded on a daily basis via email um, with online harassment and threat. And eventually I started monitoring the the IP addresses mm. and it's constantly coming from um, Fresno, California. And I got the FBI to start looking into it and they spent a fairly long time investigating and monitoring. Fred, and, what were they saying? What, what were the messages saying to you? Well, enough that this person got arrested and is actually going on trial next month. There is the part that veers into a threat 
which is things like, you know, you ought to watch your back because yeah. what happened to your daughter could happen to you next. Things like that. It wasn't saying I'm going to do it, right? but it was just enough to cross a line. But most of what it was is was monitoring every single thing that I would write publicly on Twitter and send me emails throughout the day telling me evil things about, you know, they would say evil things about my daughter, about how they hoped her death was more violent than it actually was, about their hopes. And I'm trying to be careful here because there's an ongoing trial coming up. But um, imagine the most depraved mind and the things they could say about the way they might wish a young 14-year-old teenage girl could be yeah. abused, not just murdered. Yeah. They would say things like that. It's sick and despicable, but the person was arrested. But what was crazy is because of the volume of emails he would send throughout the day and the amount of time he spent reading whatever I wrote on Twitter, it felt like it was almost impossible for it to be just one person. Like, I really thought this was coming from like an organized activity, but the FBI only arrested and, and was able to tie this to one person who also was running a business in Fresno, California. Um, I mean, it was a public, I mean, his arrest was public. Um, there was lots of reporting on it about six months ago. And, you know, fortunately, other than the vile garbage that people say on Twitter, which I don't even read comments anymore. It's like, you know what, whatever. Yeah. I've, I've not, the emails, I don't get those anymore. You know, we've put some security into our platform to, which really weeds out the crap. Do you think it's anti-Semitic related? I mean, is there any of that going on at all? Or is so, it- so people who want to say nasty, ugly things, they, they always veer into that. Oh, um, of you course. Know, they, they always do that. That's, that's with, st- standard operating procedure. Yeah. Jesus, what a um, bunch of fucking creeps. These warped, depraved minds. Yeah. They, you know, that's who they are. But it's it's more the people who, who have done it toward to me are that insane base on the right. I call them the Trumplicans. You can call them whatever you yeah. want. And there is no line that they won't cross. Well, Calling out politicians has been part of our job descriptions. <laughs> we, we've done a pretty fair job. The harassment doesn't make us stop, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and, uh, and it so given that that's kind of, you know, a, a staple of what we do, and it's been sort of enjoyable, you know, berating them, which, one, which ones have, you, have given you the most satisfaction in berating them? That's one question number one and number two have you ever been able to have you had the opportunity to look them in the eye and give them hell well so the 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 most obvious person to say would be trump but candidly it like there was such an abundance there that at at one point it was like you know i feel like he jumped the shark and it's getting boring um and i think he did but i gave him hell at his last day of the union um i got arrested for yeah that's right but How did you get in that? That's which, which you know. That's another question. How did you get in there? I mean, what was the occasion to be in there? And then the the famous uh, Brett Kavanaugh moment. That was a good one too. So, I was there as a, a guest of Speaker Pelosi, and 
I was sitting in her section right behind me was Chef Jose Andres. And right behind him was Don Jr.'s girlfriend, Kim Guilfoyle, <laughs> Bradley Parscale, Trump's campaign manager, yeah. and Ronan McDaniel. And, you know, they were hooting and hollering the whole time. They weren't supposed to be doing it. They were. Yeah. Um, every time Trump said something. So early in that speech, he started with the nonsense about all gun violence is from illegals coming over the southern border. Right. And I'm thinking, my daughter was killed by a teenage American male, but I didn't say anything. But later in the speech when he said, and I will defend your Second Amendment rights, which are under attack all over this country, I got pissed because he's talking about people like us. Yeah. You know, and we're not attacking Second Amendment rights. We're attacking gun violence. And when that whole right side of the aisle got up and started cheering loudly, I, I, could, I lost it. Yeah. In a moment, I just said, what about victims of gun violence like my daughter? And I sat down. I said it loudly. Yeah. And I sat down. Yeah, I remember. That. A minute later, Jose Andres is tapping on my shoulder, pointing to the right. And there's the Secret Service going like this to me, uh, waving me out of my seat. <laughs> and and so I think they're I'm thinking they're just going to have me leave. And Jose is saying to them, he's pointing back to Rona McDaniel, Brad Pascale, and and um, uh, what's her name? Kim Gilfoyle. Yeah, yeah. And he's saying, what about them? And he's like literally saying to them, what about yeah. those three? But they were, you know, nothing happened to them. So they take me out. I think I'm going to be just told to leave. I end up getting arrested and wow. detained and driven to a, a detention facility. The only reason why I didn't spend my entire night there, which was originally what was supposed to happen, was immediately following the speech. Speaker Pelosi tore up her copy yep, of it. Yep. And then she and Ted Deutsch got on the phone with the Capitol Police and got my release. And what was amazing is... Instead of spending the whole night there, at around 12.30, I was released. I had no idea how I was going to get back to my hotel. I go out to the um, lobby, and there's a sergeant at arms and a staff member of Speaker Pelosi is waiting for me um, to drive me back. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm about to be in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) So I get in the car, and they're like, the speaker would like to talk to you, and they dial her up. And, and I immediately said, I apologize. I embarrassed you. She just said, what are you talking about? Yeah. She's like, you spoke for America tonight. We're proud of you. And in a moment that I was at my lowest, she lifted me. And But it was a crazy night. The, the thing about Kavanaugh's, it, it, you know, we had a whole conversation earlier about messages from our children. So the day before I went to D.C., for the Supreme Court confirmation hearing, I visited Jamie at the cemetery. And I was going to the confirmation hearing as a guest of Senator Feinstein's. Back then, every political thing that I did, every political person who I spoke with, I didn't sit down. I refused to sit. It was just my way of sort of demonstrating how angry I was and making people look me in the eye. And so it's important because I was standing on the right side of the room for the confirmation hearing the whole time. When Senator Feinstein said who her guests were, and she points it to me, Kavanaugh turned around and he looked. Fast forward to lunchtime. And as you know, we develop relationships with some of these senators. Yeah. I go up and I have a relationship, for example, with Senator Blumenthal. And he and I were having a very yeah. nice conversation in that semicircle where all the senators are sitting just before they go to lunch. 
He shakes my hand to say goodbye. I turn around, and there's Brett Kavanaugh right behind me. And so I tap him on the elbow. He turns around, and I say, my name is Fred Guttenberg, father of Jamie Guttenberg, who was murdered in Parkland. And I know the exact words because it's the way I introduce myself to everybody. Yeah. I didn't leave anything till later on. I was letting everyone know when I met you who I was and why I was there. As soon as I got to the murdered in Parkland part, this, his security jumped up out of their seats and he <laughs> did that turn and they all beelined out. Yeah. Okay. Oh, um, that, that was like etched in everyone's memory. I mean, that is an that iconic hands- moment <laughs> where, so, where so, Fred sticks so, out his hand and then Kavanaugh goes, see ya. <laughs> so the day before I was at the cemetery with Jamie and I was complaining to Jamie, I feel like I'm spinning my wheels. Like I'm doing all these things. I'm going to DC to this confirmation hearing tomorrow. And I'm literally saying to her, what's the point? Like, what's the point? Like, is anybody even noticing? Is anybody paying attention? And I said, I feel like maybe I should find something else to do. And then the handshake. And no one will ever convince me that my daughter didn't have something. To she do with it. she set that one up. I mean, <laughs> and and I've got stories that I could tell share just like that. I mean, it's like, man, this is delivered on a silver platter. Here, we were talking about living again, and for me, it was finally getting back playing golf. And as I remember, you know, the day that Allison was killed, and the assistant general manager for the station said. She would want you to live. She would want you to live. And I know that that's what Jamie would want for you, too. Yeah, no, listen, Andy, and um, listen, we're friends, so we were having some conversation before this started. But I've done a lot of stuff. I've been across the country. I've met a lot of people. I've done a lot of crazy things. But I didn't live. You know, I didn't live for me. I didn't do things that I love. I didn't do things necessarily with my family that we would love together because we were all in this struggling place. Yeah. Um, but I've just, but I've come to this place and I, and I'll tell you what the moment was that shifted it for me. Um, where I'm, where I want to live again, um, where I want to find joy in experiences again, where I want to honor Jamie, not with, the sadness of constantly going back to old memories and photos and videos, which by the way, I don't have any more photos and videos to share. I've shared them all. Yeah. There are I know. No, it, it, you keep looking at you. It's like, Oh, there's gotta be a new one. Oh shit. There's none. there are none. And so because I can't keep going back to the past, I've coming to a place. And, and again, I'll share with you what, what brought me here where I want to live and and I want to live in a way where I honor not just Jamie's memory, but who Jamie would have been if I were to look ahead into the future and really focus on things that still give me a chance to honor that person that I know she would have been. And and, and here's what got me here. Um, as, as you know, I just spent the better part of, um, you know, this year, probably close to six months focused on a criminal trial, uh, but the person who murdered my daughter, which had and, to have been just 
I, I can't imagine what that's like. I mean, that, I know that sounds trite, but that had to have been just horrific. It was, it was, listen, I spent the years prior preparing myself for it. Yeah. But I wasn't but you, really prepared for it. Yeah. And it was, it was brutal. You know, listen, it's not just needing to sit through it. It is learning things, seeing things, hearing things for the first time. Because there's a lot that we were able to never have to see, hear, or know. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the trial, and this was the moment for me that changed things. A verdict was delivered that wasn't the one that I wanted. And after the verdict, I called the state attorney. Because the one thing about this trial, for anyone who watched it, you will know that any video that was shared at the trial was not shared with the public or even those of us who were sitting in the audience. It was only shared with the lawyers, the judge, and the jurors. That really sensitive stuff. The, the video of Jamie running down the hallway while there's a shooter with an AR-15 in her back, I'd never seen it. Oh, God. I, for years, I had chosen not to see it because I just felt like I couldn't. So, so through the trial, I wasn't. But here's the thing. After the trial was over, I called the state attorney and I said, I'm ready to come see that video. Mm. And I went to his office and in the privacy of his office, I watched. And part of why I needed to see it is now that the whole criminal piece of this was over with, my whole imagination of what my daughter went through, how she reacted, <coughs> what went on was clear to me, but I always had this bad, terrible feeling that there was more than, than what I was told and what my imagination had led me to believe in. And I, every night I lost sleep over, I didn't sleep through the night ever. And one of the things I worried about was because law enforcement and, and the attorneys, they all told me my daughter died instantly. And I always worried that she didn't. Yeah. She suffered. If even for five seconds. Yeah. And now that the trial is over, I needed to clear that up. And I went and I watched the video. And actually, it was exactly as I had imagined it and as it had been described to me. And after that, I went and I visited Jamie at the cemetery. And I'm sitting with Jamie at the cemetery and I just said to her, and, and just, you got to know where my daughter is buried. We have a bench and I look up to the distance. There's a, a lake with a fountain mm -hmm. and I visit her and I, I always focus on that lake and the fountain. It's just, just the peacefulness to it. And I'm, I say, I'm telling Jamie, and like I go and I talk to her, like we're having a real conversation Yeah. and I'm telling her about what I just did watching this video. And I said to her, it changes nothing. I'm still sitting here visiting you here. Nothing changed. And I said, maybe what it means to me is it's time to put that whole anxiety over the criminal piece of this over the killer and what's going to happen to him, the details of that shooting. It's time to get it out of my head. It's like, just get rid of it. And I will tell you, since that day, 
and I don't think about the killer anymore. He is out of my head. I don't think about the events of that moment anymore from that day. I, I decided that day that I want to live again, that I, that, and I know Jamie would want us to. So we're doing things again. I'm still, don't get me wrong. I'm still one angry, pissed off dad who's yep. going to continue fighting, but I'm also focusing a lot more on our foundation and um, working with my wife on that and things that really are uh, an example of who Jamie would have been and what she would have wanted us to do. And we're finding some joy in being able to do things now because we know Jamie would have wanted those things done. As I listen to this, it's almost as if Jamie was well and she was with you sitting on that bench always and probably is, always and, is oh yeah and saying dad it's it is time it's it's time and that that's what struck me by what you were just saying the other thing is is that your imagination which you know i go i've gone through the same thing i've i've never seen the video it's of allison being murdered i can't do it but I think to to your what you were describing, your imagination makes it worse than than it. Pro- well, no, it probably is about the same as as your imagination what actually happened. But I can't. I just I couldn't do it. Uh, at least I was not burdened with having a trial and having a killer still in existence. Uh, and for that, I'm grateful. Listen. The, the key thing I needed to clarify is, this is going to sound crazy. I needed to know that my daughter died instantly. I needed to know. Yeah. It. I, I needed to see it for myself. And most people would hear that from a father. I think that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. But no, when, it's but, not. That's the first uh, thing I asked. I mean, the first thing I asked, I said, did she suffer? Did she suffer? And they said, no, she didn't. I've been able to find peace knowing that she didn't and also seeing for myself yeah and my daughter the toughest strongest person i ever knew fought for her life and made it to within one second of saving her life she was turning into the stairwell she gets in there yeah she never gets shot it's as she was turning in i'm going to be testifying before the uh, virginia senate judiciary on monday for the assault weapons ban. I mean, we we've done, you mentioned earlier, you know, states have done some good work. Virginia certainly has, uh, we have a job to finish and that's the assault weapons ban, which is not going to be easy. It'll probably pass in the Senate, then probably die in the house. And even if it did make it out, Youngkin will probably would veto it, but you still have to keep on and you still have to keep those markers going. And that's yeah. between that. And as, as I'm sure, you know, I've, I've been uh, battling Google and Facebook uh, yeah. you know, for the, for the same, you know, the, the same attacks, the same vile shit that's out there. We got to fix social media. Otherwise we're going to be doomed. We both wrote books. I felt mine was very therapeutic for me. How yeah. did it, was it for you too, your book? No, listen, um, writing is my therapy. I never knew it until after this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the 
when I was planning Jamie's funeral, the funeral director handed me a journal and said, have you ever journaled before? And I'm like, no, I really haven't. But I started and writing became therapeutic for me. And it led to me in April of 2018, deciding to write Find the Helpers, which was my story of being a part of two American tragedies and the amazing people who lifted and supported me along the way. Coming next is my second book, very different from Find the Helpers. It's called American Carnage. And I'm taking on with another author, his name is Thomas Gabor, um, the lies and the myths that have been um, told by the gun lobby for far too many years that have brought us to this place that we're in today. And we're going to provide facts. In addition, we are also, at the end of each chapter, we have something called the bottom line, where we are going to make the simple bullet point messages of how to talk about the facts so that we are now capable in a more substantive way to counter the gun lobby. Um, Steve Kerr, Golden State Warriors head yep. coach, wrote the forward for it. And I'm thrilled that after reading the book, he still agreed to do it. But yeah, that's coming out in May. And that's going to become my big, you know, between that and the five years coming yeah. up in February. And we have a fundraising gal at the end of February, plus all the political work that people like you and I do. It's going to be a busy year. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We'll come to Virginia. Because we need your help. <laughs> it's going to be... Anytime. I, I, I would love, love, love to be able to uh, challenge Yunkin um, in a public way. Well, we'll we'll work on that and uh, see if we can make that happen. Because that would be an idea. I would love to tag team with you on that one. But, Let's uh, do it. Yeah, man. Well, listen, I'm glad that you are living again. Uh, it is... It's tough for us. It is, you know, we're always going to have that. It's like that statue, uh, the the picture of the statue in in Switzerland called Melancholy. And it's this, you've seen it. It's the, you know, figure slumped over with this giant hole, you know, in his torso. And that's us. I mean, we're always going to have that hole there. Uh, It's never going to go away. But, you know, hopefully we can find joy. Uh, again, and with uh, with Jamie and Allison's guidance, we'll live again. So I'm counting on it. Yes. Thank you for being with me, Fred. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you soon, buddy. Thanks, Andy. You take care and um, definitely going to see you soon. All right, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Well, that's the story. A special acknowledgement to Mary Ann Kennedy Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? And I'd sure appreciate a great rating in Apple Podcasts, too. I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening. 